Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, chapter 12, is where we pick up the story in the midst of our evening studies along these weeks in this wonderful historical book. And we'll take all of chapter 12 into account tonight. So let me read those 25 verses for us and then pray for God's blessing on our study and and we'll begin together. So listen as the Lord speaks to you again through his true word. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from those whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you. And his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now therefore, stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. And Jacob went into Egypt, and the Egyptians oppressed them. Then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against him. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord, and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbaal and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hands of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now, behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord... And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added all to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet... 
Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after the empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray once again. Father, we do ask this night in our study of Your truth that You would give us a full measure of Your Spirit, that we might listen with attention, that we might respond with faithfulness, that You would cut our hearts to the quick, that we would know the conviction of sin and also the salvation that's found in our beloved Savior, the true King of kings, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Perhaps the most unexpected event in American church history happened in July of 1750. Jonathan Edwards was fired by his congregation. Jonathan Edwards, who delivered what is probably the most famous sermon in American history, certainly it's the most infamous sermon in American history, titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, who's considered by many scholars, Christian and non-Christian alike, as maybe the greatest American thinker or at least greatest thinker that ever lived in these American lands. Jonathan Edwards, who preached a sermon series on justification by faith alone that the Spirit used to awaken a town to bring about true revival. Jonathan Edwards, well, he had gotten so sideways with his congregation that they sacked him. And when he came to deliver his farewell sermon, he pictured a scene where the time was coming at the day of judgment when he and the congregation would stand before the Lord And there would be something of a trial that took place on that great day of the Lord. And he was confident in his innocence, even as George Marsden in his standard biography of Jonathan Edwards says, the rejected pastor kept the tone compassionate, yet he did not let anyone miss the point that his conscience was clear and he was confident of vindication and the final reckoning. It's a story that's somewhat eerily familiar and similar to the story before us tonight in 1 Samuel chapter 12, because here we have the Lord's appointed servant, a man of great renown, rejected and basically removed by the people. He's standing up to give his farewell address. It's an address that deals with matters of conscience. It's an address that deals with matters of eternity. It's an address that we'll see by the end does give words of grace and hope Uh, to a people that have made a wrong decision. Now, just to catch you up to speed to where we are in this uh, wonderful book, you remember that last week we looked at three chapters in a row and noticed that Saul had been appointed and anointed as the first king in Israel. And not only did he rise to political prominence with great certainty, his military dominance was seen, at least in its strength, from the outset, for he defeated in chapter 11 the Ammonites, that came against Jabesh-Gilead, and he uh, wiped the floor with them, as it were, militarily speaking. And look at verse 14 of chapter 11. 
Now Samuel, after that salvation came to Israel, said, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the covenant. And that's really where we pick up the story tonight, with God's people gathered at Gilgal to renew the covenant, and it has this overtones of something we see all throughout the Old Testament, which would be scenes of a covenant renewal ceremony. But it's not just a covenant renewal-like ceremony that happens here in 1 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, you might have noticed, students, as I was, I was reading the passage, there's, there's lots of language about witnesses. And so it's right to think about this scene as almost a covenant courtroom. Because in quick succession, what happens is different persons are put in the, the dock of a covenant courtroom. You have Samuel first place in the dock as he defends his conscience before Israel. And then Samuel as a prophet, thus a covenant lawyer, it's as though he almost puts God in the dock and defends God before the people. Because of course these people had rejected God as their king and then in turn, thirdly, the the nation of Israel itself is going to be put in the dock as the verdict of their guilt is going to be uttered in such a, way, such a way and declared in such a way that nobody would have forgotten it that was there that day at Gilgal. And so it's a thunderous farewell address that we want to think about along the way this evening. And I just have three simple words to guide us through this passage. The first word is integrity. That's when Samuel's in the dock. And then we'll think about idolatry as Samuel prosecutes the case against Israel. And then we'll think at the end about fidelity. Which is really, what does the Lord require of these people who are convicted over their sin? So first of all, we want to notice the defense of Samuel's integrity. If you just glance again at verses 1 and 2, you'll notice that he reviews the situation that had brought them to their present place, which was he was old, the nation of Israel discerned a leadership crisis was at hand, and they decided that they needed a king. And he had put the king before them, and you'll notice verse 3, he says, Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. You'll notice in the ensuing questions, he essentially says, What, if anything, do you have against me? What have I taken from you? Have I defrauded any of you? Have I oppressed any of you? But, but you'll notice the first few things that he asks related to him taking things from Israel. And why that's significant, because you might remember back in chapter 8, when they asked for a king, God commissioned Samuel not just to give them a king, but also warn them about this king after their own heart. And do you remember that verb that came over and over and over about what this king was going to do to Israel? He was going to take, wasn't he? He was going to take their beloved possessions. He was going to take their servants. He was even going to take their sons into battle. And here comes Samuel saying, what have I taken from you? Have I defrauded you, oppressed you in any way? And you'll notice... They say, of course, in verse 4, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. He goes on to say, well, the Lord is witness against you that you have said this. I'm witness today. And they say, well, the Lord is witness. That's a defense of Samuel's integrity. And if you were with us this morning as we were thinking about things related to godly leadership in the church and we thought about those Leaders that we need, leaders worth remembering and considering and imitating. Certainly we can even add to it this evening that these are the kind of leaders we need that can stand before the people to whom they are called to minister at the end of their race and say, what charge do you have against me? Not that they have been sinless, of course, in their ministry, 
but they're without blame in how they have ministered God's truth. And wouldn't that want to be a heart cry that all of us would have in our places of service, in our places of leadership? Not that we're saying that our service was perfect, but we're saying that, yes, our conscience is clear. It's been full of integrity. What charge do you have against me in the way that I have served you? Well, Samuel, of course, is in the dock. They declare, Samuel, you're innocent. So as the text continues in this next section, it's as though God himself is put in the dock and we see the verdict on Israel's idolatry. For notice verse 6 and 7, Samuel says to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. Because underneath it all, of course, this request for the king was ultimately a rejection of God. And it's as though here in this kind of covenant courtroom scene, what's being prosecuted in their midst is who is the guilty party in the choice of a king? Was Israel right to reject God and choose their own king because God had somehow misguided them in his rule, somehow done something wrong in his reign? Or, of course, was, was Israel ultimately responsible for this sinful request. And so what Samuel comes and does is he pleads with the people on behalf of God and basically functions here as God's defense attorney in this covenant courtroom. And I want you to notice again that wonderful phrase there that starts verse 7. Stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord. And the only reason I call that out is that is the heart of a true minister, I suppose you can say. It's the heart of a true gospel leader. It's the heart of every single parent, isn't it true? So often we speak to our children, we speak to our loved ones, we speak to those under our care. Stand still that I may plead with you on behalf of the Lord. Not that I would kind of ambush you with truth, but, but hold still for just a second. Let me plead with you what the Lord has done for you, Israel, is what Samuel says. If you just glance down through the next few verses, it's just a summary, a reiteration of Israel's history up until that point, which followed a very simple cycle. He brought them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. They soon fell into idolatry, so he handed them over to the Philistines and the Moabites. They cried out to the Lord for deliverance, so he raised up judges, and they fell what? into idolatry again. And so he brought enemies up against them in discipline. And one of them was this king, you'll notice in verse 12, Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, who seemingly was the one responsible for these desires that they would have a king to reign over us. When verse 12, Samuel rightly says, the Lord your God was your king. So he's pointing the finger at their idolatry being underneath the root request and notice the root of idolatry in verse 9 as it begins, but they forgot the Lord their God. So often throughout Israel's history, at the core of their sinfulness was they simply forgot who God was. They simply forgot what God had done. They simply forgot what, what God had said I was thinking about this earlier this week, and it came to mind this idea of forgetting what we ought to remember. 
And I was thinking about this story in the Chronicles of Narnia titled Silver Chair where there's this main character, Jill Pole, and she's told by the Lion King Aslan early on that there are these four signs that she needs to know for her coming journey into Narnia. And he goes on to tell her, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake up in the morning, when you lie down at night, when you wake in the middle of the night. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. And if you know the story, you know what happens. If you don't know the story, you know what happens. She began to forget, to remember. And forgetting led to what? Things getting worse. Uh, much like the Old Testament people of God, much like this Jill Pole character in Narnia, you too are a person. We too are people, aren't we? Prone to forget God. When you forget God's holiness, what do you do, students? Get cuddly and casual with sin. When you forget God's promise of protection, what happens? You look to other powers in the world to give you security. And when you forget God's wrath and justice, you think you don't need to repent of sin. When you forget Christ Jesus is the only Savior for sinners, you neglect so great a salvation. And to ensure that the Israelites knew who genuinely was at fault for what had happened. The verdict is one that comes from heaven itself. Notice verse 17. Samuel says, Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. Now, kids, you, you, you need to know why he says there at the beginning of verse 17, is it not wheat harvest today? A wheat harvest was a time when the clouds weren't full of rain. A wheat harvest was a time in which thunder didn't clap. In other words, when you hear the thunder that's getting ready to come, you will know this is God's declaration of your guilt before him. And so just as a judgment bang down a gavel in judgment upon a people and usher a verdict, so does thunder strike from heaven. And you'll notice what happens in verse 18. Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel, they heard that verdict of their idolatry. And so just as it was almost this scene in Acts chapter 2 where the people heard about their guilt in that first preaching on Pentecost of the new covenant, they asked, what must we do to be saved? Well, the nation of Israel here essentially says, what must we do? And that takes us in this thunderous farewell from this defense of Samuel's integrity and the verdict on Israel's idolatry to think about the summons to needed fidelity. As you'll see in verse 19, they say to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to our sins, all of our sins, this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. Now, uh, students, this is why you always have to pay careful attention when you're studying God's word, because you notice what they don't say with the pronouns there in verse 18. Pray for your servants to the Lord our God. They don't say that. They say, pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. And Samuel wants to give them comfort immediately. Notice verse 20, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. 
Yet don't turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with your whole heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. You know, kids, it's even there in verse 21 that you get just a wonderful application about the vanity of idolatry. Because you see, he talks about this idea that idols, of course, are empty. They cannot profit nor deliver. How many people look to idols to bring them good? But the Lord says there's no profit that they can ever bring. How many people look to idols for safety and security, for deliverance, but they have no power to prevent bad things from coming into your life? So what I want to think about as we begin to bring our meditation to a close tonight are just two simple realities about how we ought to respond. What's the summons to needed fidelity that God mentions here to Samuel? The first of which is the Lord requires fear from his people. What must we do? They cry out to Samuel. Look at verse 24. What does he say? Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And this kind of covenant renewal ceremonies that we find throughout the Old Testament, they remind us of covenant stipulations, we would say, that there are blessings that come from fearing God and there are curses that come from wickedness. Isn't that exactly what Samuel has just said? Fear the Lord and you will know blessing. Walk in wickedness and you will know his curse. Only fear the Lord. And certainly throughout any age that the church has lived, and thus no doubt in the age in which we live, we can rightly say, can't we, that one of the greatest needs of the hour, because it's a perpetual need of the hour, is for God's people to know what it means to fear Him. As one old theologian called it, the soul of godliness is found in, in fearing God. Uh, what does the church of Jesus Christ in our time and place, what does a church like Redeemer Presbyterian Church need most in this coming week? But hearts that would increasingly know the fear of God, that, that holy, joyful trembling that causes us to resist sin, that drives us to the Lord's adoration, that even humbles us before His majesty and reverence, that we would know something about that quality that belonged to the early church in Acts chapter 9 where it said they were walking, they were being built up in the fear of God, and guess what happened? They grew, and they multiplied. What does God require? Well, fear from his people, but you'll notice also the grace that he promises that he won't forsake his people. Because if you go back up to what he said in verse 22, notice Samuel says the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. And I, I trust you see that this is grace that is greater than all of our sin. The Lord does not forsake his beloved children. The Lord does not forsake his treasured possession. The Lord does not forsake his royal nation, the priesthood that he has called to himself. And one of the ways that even Israel was going to be assured of that not being forsaken reality, notice verse 23 and what Samuel promises and offers as assurance. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Here is a priest. 
Here is a prophet that will intercede for them. Here is a priest. Here is a prophet that will speak God's word to them. Here is a priest. Here is a prophet that would remind them that they had not been forsaken. And doesn't that point us even to the Lord Jesus Christ, the true King of kings, he who is our great high priest and our great prophet, who always lives to make intercession for us, he who is our Emmanuel, who is God with us. How do you know that God will not forsake his own? Well, you have a Savior who prays for you. You have a Savior who instructs you by his word and spirit. That same clap of thunder that went out at Gilgal is a thunder that even goes out through his word and spirit tonight to ordinary people like you. Because what does he require of you? That you fear him. What does he promise you? If you bow before the king of kings, whose name is Jesus Christ, he won't forsake you. That you too can know what it means to live in covenant relationship with God. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you have given us your Son, Christ Jesus, and pray that by your Spirit you would work in us. Have that holy reverence that you require that we would remember you are not only a consuming fire, but a covenant-keeping, a covenant-making, a covenant-blessing God that you've given to us, your beloved Son, that we might know you are with us, that you won't forsake us, that you will build us up after his very image. And we pray that you would do those things by the power of the Spirit and according to the blessing of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.